Have you ever heard the term, practice makes perfect? Yeah? Everyone's here heard that? I know I have many times. I know when it comes to being or trying to become great at a certain skill, it pays to practice again and again and again. I took 10 years of piano lessons when I was younger. And at that time, you were told to practice all the time. And the only way to get to the point of flawlessly playing a piece for the piano was to practice. But at that time, when I was younger, playing was fun, performing was fun, practice was not fun. It was meticulous, it was repetitive, it was boring. It was sometimes very painful to listen to. You had to train your muscles in certain ways to accomplish certain things as you played. You had to uh, learn certain positions or actions. You had to painstakingly learn ways, methods, and techniques to get better. I had a piano book called the Brown Scale Book. And as you can see, it was as exciting in look as it sounds. <laughs> Doesn't that just scream excitement? <laughs> but it was hard to keep focus as you practice on the fact that the practice improved the fun parts. It improved your playing. It improved your performance. When we, um, when we actually say practice makes perfect, though, I think usually what we mean by that is practice makes better, right? Practice improves you. It doesn't usually make you absolutely perfect. But the point was that the more you practice, the better you became. I was thinking about this, and you know what's interesting? Is that every religion, every major religion in the world preaches this idea. They do, whether it's unconsciously or consciously. The more you practice, the more you practice your faith, the more you practice these works, the more you do this, the better you become. The more, if you keep practicing, keep doing, keep working, eventually, you might become perfect. You may get there. You may achieve what you're set out to do. But Christianity really flies in the face of this mantra. Because Christian, the basis for Christianity is completely different. Yes, we know that God requires perfection. He does. That's why we have verses like the ones we read earlier, that God says, be holy like I am holy. Or when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. But where it's different is how we accomplish that. How we can attain perfection. How we become perfect. Because as Christians, we believe that it's absolutely impossible for us to become perfect on our own. It's impossible. We cannot do it. We are so wicked that there is nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves of our imperfections. We have all fallen short. And on our own, we will always fall short of God's glory, of his standard of perfection. Practice doesn't make perfect. It can't. We cannot practice to the point. We cannot work hard enough to become perfect. So we have this belief that, okay, God requires perfection. He requires that of us. Tells us to be holy. But then we can't attain it on our own. However, God provides a way. God provides a way 
for us to become perfect. We're going to look into the scriptures today at a passage that talks about this idea of how we can become perfect. Do you want to be perfect? Of course. We all want to be better. We all want to improve. We all want to be perfect in God's sight. So let's look at the scripture, see what it has to tell us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is near the end of your Bible after the Timothys and Titus, Philemon. You'll hit Hebrews before you hit James. We'll be in the first part of the chapter today, Hebrews chapter 10. And as you turn there, I want to just pray for us as we go to God's word, that it would guide us into knowledge of him and growth in holiness. Lord, we this morning as we come to your word, that uh, your word would be teaching us, that it would be growing us, um, that your spirit would be here working on each one of our hearts, that we would see more of you, see how absolutely incredible your grace to us is, and how that should inspire us to live lives more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a bit of context in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was actually written, it was written to the Jewish people who had become Christians. Okay, So these were believers in Christ who had come out of a Jewish background. I want you to imagine and put yourself in these people's shoes for a minute. Okay, You've lived your whole lives as a Jew, and then you become a Christian, and they are understandably torn between these two lives, torn between their families, their traditions, what they had done their entire lives, and then their habits on that side. But on the other side of their new faith, their church family, and what they were becoming to believe in Jesus. So they were torn. And they're like, how do these two things fit together? If you think about it, Jesus was a Jew. Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. It happened in Palestine. This was a very, the faith was very near to them, but they couldn't figure out, how do these relate? How does our past relate to our present? How does our faith now relate to the faith of our forefathers? And so the writer of Hebrews came along and wrote a letter explaining how Jesus relates to Judaism, how he fits. And really, it's not just how he fits, it's how he supersedes, how he has completed and fulfilled their past faith. He goes throughout the book, he talks about how Jesus is greater than the angels, he's greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, than any other human being or priest, how Jesus has provided a better Sabbath and a better tabernacle, how he provided the way into the Holy of Holies as the greatest high priest who serves in a greater temple in heaven, and how he has enacted a new and greater covenant. All of these Jewish ideas that Jesus has completed and fulfilled and made better. And then we come to chapters 9 and 10, and he moves on to one other extremely important part of Judaism, and that's the sacrificial system. How Christ completed and fulfilled the sacrificial system by, coming a, by becoming a sacrifice himself, a perfect and holy sacrifice. He did it to take away sins. Have you realized that Jesus died to take away your sins? He died to make you holy? Died to make you perfect? That's what he did. To get the proper context for where we'll be today in chapter 10, we have to start back in chapter 9. So in chapter 9, I'm going to read a few verses here, and this will give us a picture of where we're going today. 
Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, says this. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Skip down to verse 22 with me. It says this, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That's a big chunk of verses, but do you get what this is saying? There's some parts that are harder to understand than others, but there's one very easy thing to understand here. In verse 26, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he did. When Jesus came, he offered himself as a sacrifice to take away sin. Through his death, Jesus provided a way for people to become purified, to become holy, to become perfect. Sinless. Here's the thing. In Christianity, if you want to become perfect, it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And then we come to chapter 10, and we'll see several incredible things about this truth, that Jesus died to make us perfect. It's remarkable. It's, it's quite stunning what he did and accomplish for us. And this is worth looking at closely because really this is at the heart of our faith. This is something that everything else centers upon, focuses on. And the first one thing we'll see is this, that by making people perfect, Jesus accomplished what the law could never accomplish. Jesus did what the law can never do, making people truly perfect. By making us perfect, Jesus accomplished what the law could not. I hope you'll stay with me. This is this sermon may be a bit deeper than some and more theological, but I believe that understanding this truth can transform your life. It's well worth it. Okay? Read with me, starting in verse 1 in chapter 10. It says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. When it talks about the law here, it's talking about the Torah, the earliest books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what was known as the Jewish law. God gave the Jews this law as a method of living. And the context here, though, is specifically speaking of the sacrificial system. One major part of the law, the sacrifice that, that God instituted for them to follow year after year. And it was originally explained in and put into effect by the law. But it says here, the law was only a shadow. It was only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Last weekend on Saturday, Angela and I took Peter to his first Major League Baseball game and down in Toronto, and it was a nice day, a beautiful day, so the roof of the Rogers Center, or formerly known as the Sky Dome, was open. And uh, I, I want to say this, I would recommend never take a nursing newborn to a baseball game. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. We lived and we learned, okay, and now you can learn from our mistakes. But <laughs> Peter, right now, hates direct sunlight. Okay, he just hates it. He, he can't stand it. And not to mention the fact that his baby's skin could be easily burned or develop a heat rash from all the heat coming from the sun. So apart from the times when Angela was frustratingly trying to find a place to nurse him, we were out in the sun trying to keep him away from the sun. And so we were trying to figure out ways to cast our shadow on him. Okay, let's see. The sun's up there. We'll hold him here so he's protected. Or a lady next to us loaned us her umbrella to put and... It was a crazy day, but uh, we really used our shadows that day to protect him, and it was even made worse by my team getting creamed by the Blue Jays, but that's another matter. But I want you to think about shadows for a minute, okay? Think about shadows. What is a shadow? What is it? Is it, a, is it you? No. Is it a reflection of you? Kind of. It's a pale one. Does it look like you? Again, kind of, sometimes more than others. It's your shape, albeit usually distorted. It's really, it's a weak and not particularly accurate display of you. That's what it is. So when it's said here that the law was a shadow of the things to come. It means that something was greater coming. It, it was something stronger, something more accurate was still coming. They only saw a shadow with the law. But when it says something greater was coming, that, of course, is referring to Christ when he came. The author says here that the law, since it was only a shadow, it couldn't perfect people. Only the full, true, perfect reflection of Christ could perfect people. And then he offers proof of this. It says, For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. He's like, the law never cleansed people's consciences. So how could you say it perfected people? 
If it had perfected people, then it would have ceased to exist. Somewhere along the line, someone would have gotten to the point by following the law and following the sacrifices that he would have been perfect. And then someone else would have gotten to the point that they were perfect. And then someone else until there would be a whole bunch of perfect people walking around, completely negating the need for a law entirely. You ask why? Why could the sacrificial system not perfect people? Well, really, that wasn't its purpose. It wasn't put in place to perfect people. It's like asking why a car can't fly. Well, it's not made to fly. That's why. The law wasn't made to perfect people. And besides, even if that was its purpose, it wouldn't have been successful. Because in order to take away sin, the blood that was spilled had to be perfect. Because sin-stained blood can't save from sin. Perfect blood was required to make people perfect. And the blood of animals wasn't perfect. It says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't happen. Yes, they had to be animals without spot or without blemish, without defect. As perfect as they could find, as perfect as possible. But even finding a perfect animal was impossible. They couldn't do it. Really, they were just symbols. They were symbols of the perfection that was actually required. God wanted people to know this. This is what I require. So if the law wasn't made to take away sin, then what was it made for? Well, we see that here in verse 3. It says, but those sacrifices are what? An annual reminder of sins. It's an annual reminder of sins. Continually reminding people of sin. I think this shows us the importance that we're not under the sacrificial system anymore, but this hasn't gone away, this need to remind of sins. We need to remember that we're fallen. We need to remember that each of us is a sinner, that each of us has broken God's law. God created this entire detailed, ceremonial, sacrificial system. And it was very detailed. Just read in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's crazy what he had them do. But he created this entire thing in order to remind people that they were sinners. Do you get that? They have sinned and they still need his grace. The difference, though, between the law... And Christ was in the blood that was shed. See, with animal sacrifices, the blood could not take away sins, but Christ's blood could. There are several reasons we could explore why Christ's blood was greater, why Christ's blood was superior and able to cleanse people from the fact that he was both God and man, and the fact that he had access to the heavenly temple as the great high priest. But perhaps most importantly, Jesus' blood was the only truly and perfectly undefiled blood. It was the only blood ever seen so perfect since before Adam's fall at the beginning of the world and to this day. It was not tainted by sin. It was not tainted by corruption. And yet, it was shed for us. You might wonder, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting this idea, okay, so that 
Jesus was greater than the sacrifices because the law couldn't ever do this. But why is this so important? Why is this so important to us that Jesus died to make us perfect? Why should I even want to be perfect? Why should I want to do that? Well, we'll see an answer here straight from the words of Jesus. As we continue this, it quotes Jesus. Start in verse 5. It says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Stop there. This is In these words of Christ, we learn another very important part of his sacrifice for sins. And that's this, that by making people perfect, Jesus completed what God wanted done all along. Jesus completed what God desired to be completed originally. In making people perfect, Jesus completed God's will. See, ever since the beginning of the world, God wanted people to be perfect. Think about it. How did he create Adam and Eve? Perfect. Sinless. He gave them very simple rules to remain perfect. Throughout history, he always told people to be holy, and he both rewarded righteousness and holiness and perfection, and he punished sin, the opposite. He established the whole Hebrew law in order to give a human standard for holiness. And he told people, be holy, for I am holy. I desire truth in the inmost parts. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. A righteous life, I desire. At the core of what God desired for the entire human race was perfection. That's what he wanted. This is what he wanted from us all along. And this passage points out that Jesus completed these desires God had for humanity because he provided a way for people to become perfect. Let's read again, verses 5, and then we'll continue on to verse, down to verse 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. And then the author of Hebrews is going to explain this. It says, First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And here's the key. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is basically saying Jesus came to do God's will. This is why he came, to do what God wanted. But did you see what God's will was in verse 10? And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That was God's will. That's what he desired. He wanted to make us holy. Have you ever wondered what God desires of you? What he wants from you? What does God want from me? He wants you to be holy. He, he hates the sin that has corrupted and consumed us. 
He wants you to rid your life of that, to live in repentance, to seek to honor only Him. We absolutely are to seek to please God in this way. We need to strive to be holy, to be ruthless and relentless at repenting of our sin. However, if we think we can ever attain that on our own, we're sadly mistaken. We can't. You might think, this doesn't make sense to me. If God desired perfection all along, then why did he institute the sacrificial system at all there in the middle? If the law couldn't perfect people, but that's what God wanted, why didn't he send Christ earlier? Why didn't he send Christ after, say, right after Adam? Or after Abraham? Or after Moses? Why did he wait so long to bring Christ into the picture? If that's what he wanted. Well, the answer, first of all, to the law part, comes back to what we just talked about. That the purpose of the law was not to make people holy. That's not why he did it. As you saw earlier, it, the law wasn't a method for holiness. It was a reminder of wickedness and the need for a Savior that was yet to come. And it clearly pointed to the need for redemption, for forgiveness and salvation. Galatians 3, in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law just pointed to Christ. As for the timing, I don't know exactly why God chose to send Christ to the world at that time that he did, as opposed to other times in history. But I do know that God was preparing the world. He was preparing the world for Christ. Maybe he knew that mankind needed several thousand years of reminder of how wicked they were before they would see the need for a Savior. We really still haven't learned that lesson today. Whatever the reason, God had his reason, and I can guarantee that they're much wiser than we could comprehend for sending Christ exactly when he did to pay the price for sin and to make us perfect. You might ask as well, though, well, what about all the people who lived under the law, who lived before Christ? If the law couldn't make them holy, then could they ever be saved? And don't worry, just because... God didn't, hadn't sent Jesus to earth yet, doesn't mean he left people without a way to be saved. It was still dependent on God's grace and his mercy and his imputing and giving righteousness. We're in Hebrews 10 today. Do you know what the chapter right after Hebrews 10 is? Hebrews 11, known as the Hall of Faith, where this writer lists many people who had come to faith in God, in the Old Testament. And that really, they were just a handful of thousands who put their faith in God alone for salvation. And what did God do? He credited them with righteousness. People under the law still had hope to be saved. But it, the point is here, it wasn't in their many sacrifices. It wasn't in their following the law. It was in their faith in God to save them. The law, as we said earlier, it's really only a temporary measure. It was, put, it was put in place as a temporary measure to remind people of sins. But this might raise another question, and that's if the law was only temporary, and now God has sent this other way for us to become perfect, then could Christ also be temporary? Could God still be some, sending something greater than Christ? Or maybe he already has 
in the last couple thousand years, made a better way for us to become perfect. But as we continue in this passage, we'll see another amazing aspect of what Jesus did. And that's this, that by making people perfect, Jesus created a permanent solution. By dying himself as a sacrifice for sins, Jesus created a permanent solution for sin. He created a permanent solution for making people perfect. Let's continue, starting again in verse 10. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Is there anything at home that you get frustrated at having to do over and over and over again? Maybe just a menial task around the house? I know for me it's yard work. I really can't stand most forms of yard work. And now that we're back in a house, I'm responsible for a lot more yard work than I was before. There's no more condo fees to take care of all the nice upkeep of the place. And so I have to do things like mowing the grass, for example. No matter how many times you cut the grass, keeps growing. Every spring it happens. It comes back to life from the dead and you have to mow it again and again. It, it gets really frustrating. But here under the Mosaic Law, when the author talks about the law here, he says the task that had to be completed over and over again was sacrifices. The priest had to stand and perform his religious duties again and again. He offered the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So just like the grass just doesn't stop growing, the people wouldn't stop sinning. The sacrifices just had to be kept oh, again and again, year after year, day after day. But then we read that the sacrifice Jesus accomplished was different. It only had to be done once. Verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Whereas the priest had to stand and keep offering sacrifice after sacrifices, Jesus symbolized that he was done because he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He was saying, the work of purifying people is done. It's finished forever. Now, this leads to a great question that you've probably had all day, ever since I even brought up the idea of being perfect. And that is, that how can I speak of us being made perfect when we so obviously aren't? I mean, I know my sins, you know yours, and you say, well, Pastor Matt, you keep reminding us ways that we've sinned in our lives. How can you now be saying that we're perfect, or that Jesus has made us perfect? How can we ever be considered that? There's one very key thing to understand here. And that is that there are two aspects of our salvation. Okay? On the one hand, because of Christ's death, we are given forever his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection. On the other hand, we're not in heaven yet. And we still have fallen bodies. We still have the flesh. And so we still keep sinning. 
It's what is known as justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. These are big words. Here, I'll explain them to you. Justification is the act of God declaring us not guilty. Okay, it happens once for all. Sanctification is the ongoing journey of our lives where we keep growing in holiness. We're not there yet. Okay? Once we accept Christ as our Savior, we are 100% absolutely, completely justified. We're nowhere close to being sanctified. Justification happens in a moment. Sanctification happens in a lifetime. So when I say that we are already perfect in Christ, I'm not speaking of our day-to-day living of sanctification. I'm speaking of how God in heaven chooses to see us because of Christ. We are justified, completely made perfect in his sight. I think this chapter has one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible for describing this. Read with me verse 13 and 14. It says, Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you get that? Christ has already made perfect those who are still being made perfect. It's a beautiful picture. So even though we have a long way to go in our sanctification, our standing in heaven is perfect. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Isn't that remarkable? It's like having a credit rating at a bank. If you go into a bank to get a loan or a mortgage or to get a new credit card or something, they check your credit rating, how you've done in the past. And if you've been in a lot of debt before or you haven't paid your credit card bills on time or different things happen, they give you a poor credit rating. Okay? So they don't want to help you out as much as other people. But let's say, go into this bank and they choose to give you, even though you have a very poor credit rating, they choose to give you an absolutely perfect credit rating. An A plus, you might say. (laughs) Well, that's extremely unlikely ever to happen here on earth. But let's say they give you this perfect rating so that you have all the benefits of someone who's been perfect through their life. Have you been perfect? No. Did you earn this? No. The bank gave it to you based on no merit of yours. But now, how does the bank choose to see you as their customer? As perfect. Because the little rating. They choose to see you as perfect. Even though that's not might be what your bank account habits say. You say, well, that's not really fair. And they say, that's grace. That's grace. If we got what's fair, none of us would like it. That's the way God sees us. Fallen in sin, but we've been given a perfect Standing by Jesus, by grace. Even though our earthly habits don't completely reflect this, we have his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Some of you really need to understand this better because this theological concept is extremely important to your faith. 
It's extremely important. If you have trusted in Christ to save you from your sins, if you have done this, you are completely forgiven. Do you get that? You are not only forgiven, you are justified, declared not guilty in the sight of God. Yes, you have sinned and you will sin more, but God counts you as holy. Charles Spurgeon says this, All the love and acceptance which perfect obedience could have obtained of God belong to you, because Christ was perfectly obedient on your behalf. You don't have to keep confessing sins you've already repented of in your past. You don't have to feel condemned or because of what you've done in the past. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to wallow in your guilt You don't have to carry around the luggage of your past. You are free. Yes, we should be aware of our sins. Absolutely. But we should be more aware of his grace. We should be more aware of his grace. We need to accept by faith that we are no longer condemned. Because Christ was condemned for us. Now, some of you today might feel like you're still condemned. And maybe that's because you are. You don't have this perfect standing in heaven yet that we've been talking about because either you have not heard of, or maybe you've ignored, or maybe rejected Christ before and his offer to you. And because of this, you still have a guilty standing before God. You don't have that perfect rating. You've committed many sins just like the rest of us, and you come to God like, how could I ever be made perfect? How could I ever be made holy? But Christ, out of love and grace, came and offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for your sins Forever. He came to earth and died in order to offer you his perfect standing before God. He loved you enough to die for you. Will you accept his love today? Or will you reject it again? Will you say, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. Please save me from my sins. can't do it on my own. Help me to live a life that honors and glorifies you, not myself. If you do this, Jesus promises you that he'll forgive you, that he'll save you, that on this day he will make you holy. He'll make you perfect. He'll make you perfect in standing before God today. And one day, he'll make you perfect totality. Don't leave today without talking to someone, talking to me or a friend who brought you about this decision. It is eternally important. But as we come to the end of this passage, some of you might wonder, well, what guarantees do I have that Jesus' blood will do this for me? I mean, you've been making these claims. How do I know you're telling the truth? Or why should I trust him to save me? to justify me. Will he actually get the job done? 
And we'll see an answer in the last few verses in this passage. And that's this. By making people perfect, Jesus established a better covenant with his people. Excuse me. In making people perfect, Jesus established a greater covenant than has ever been seen. He established a better covenant with his people. Read with me in verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Our God is a covenant-making God. He made a covenant in the past with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and with Moses, and with David. He's made a number of covenants, and these covenants were absolute and guaranteed promises of certain things. That he would never flood the earth again. That he would give the Israelites the land to live in. That he would establish a kingdom forever for David. And you know what? Every single one of the promises that he made came true. But the one Jesus instituted, the covenant that Jesus brought, was by far greater than any of these other ones. Back in Hebrews chapter 8, it says, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator and is superior to the old one, as it is founded on better promises. We call this the new covenant. The new covenant under Christ. When Jesus made this new covenant, he removed the need to ever make another covenant again. Because he removed the need to ever make people perfect. Read with me in verse 17. He says, Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. He doesn't need to promise us anything else because he's given us everything we need. Salvation, love, grace, Mercy, forgiveness, security, hope, joy, eternal life in heaven. And he actually says he won't remember our sins anymore. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. He chooses to act in a way that does not remember that we've even sinned. It's astounding. So what guarantees do you have that if you trust Jesus, he'll make you perfect? Well, for one, it says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit will testify to you. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with him after that time, says the Lord. So the Holy Spirit will testify both in your mind and through the scriptures that we read that this is true. Second, your conscience attests to it. It says, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. We talked about our consciences a little while ago, how God has instilled this in us. We know right from wrong because of what he's given us. He, and then once we're saved, he gives us a desire to do good instead of evil. As we're sanctified. Third, you become a recipient of a covenant made by the holy and perfect God who can never tell a lie. His promises have always come true and always will come true. 
This covenant that he's made with you to save you, to bring you to heaven, you can trust him to keep that. You can trust him to keep his covenant. It's really stronger than any promise we could ever make as humans. Much, much stronger. Because we can tell lies, but he can't. So we come to the end, you may think, if God considers us already perfect, okay, so we're perfect in standing, is there really any need for us to work at getting better at all? Is there any need for us to be sanctified? I'd say this, there's no need for you to work to make yourself perfect, because that's impossible anyway. Jesus did all that for you. But there is a need to respond. There's a need to respond to being justified by growing and by working out your faith. Remember how we talked about practice makes perfect and how we believe you cannot practice our faith in order to become perfect. While other religions want you to do things in order to become perfect, Christianity wants you to do things out of gratitude for becoming perfect. Do you get the difference? How we respond. Practice may make close to perfect in our everyday actions like learning a musical instrument. But when it comes to our faith, practice never makes perfect. Imagine with me, um, if you're a musician here, this will be easy for you. If you're not, just try to imagine anyway. Imagine with me that you play this instrument and you have the biggest musical recital of your life okay, coming up. And so you practice really, really hard. You practice for hours every day to try to get better for this recital. And you get up to play your piece And you play it, well, decently well. You think you did okay. But there were several key mistakes that you made. Maybe you played the song a little bit too fast. Or maybe you played a few wrong notes here or there. And so your teacher gets up and says, okay, you obviously worked hard, but not hard enough. Because it wasn't perfect. And so I really can't pass you on this recital. But then he says, however... I played this song before, and I played it perfectly. I have a perfect score. And even if this doesn't make sense to you, even if you can't figure out why, I'll give you my score. I'll give it to you. And I'll pass you. I'll accept you based on my score instead of yours. Fair or not fair, it's grace. And very few of us would ever reject that offer. No, practice doesn't make perfect. Only the perfect man making a perfect sacrifice in the perfect way at the perfect time can make perfect people out of imperfect people like you and me. Let's trust him that he's done this for us or that if you haven't yet done this, he he can do this for you. He will do this for you. Let's pray. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lived and pleads for me. Jesus, because of your blood, we're free, we're saved. There is therefore now no condemnation because of your blood. Help us to really 
get this through our minds. That once we come to you for salvation, you don't look on us with wrath anymore. You don't look on us with judgment. You look on us with Christ's perfection, with Christ's holiness. And we thank you. We're astounded by your love. Please help it to affect the way we live as we continually become sanctified to become more into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name.